on today's show. I think giving some some geographic and, and historical context to, to where I grew up is probably helpful. Um, I grew up in a small farm town in, in Northern California, um, and despite it being only an hour and a half from San Francisco, it, it really is a farm town. It, it may as well be the middle of Nebraska. Um, hey, I'm from Nebraska, by the way. Come on, <laughs> just now. totally. That, uh, I chose, I chose yeah, that totally at random. I love it, uh, though. Yeah, and I love your I love your line that you you describe it as like I think you you introduced this in the forward of your book. You say. Uh, you you were a an elementary and a college dropout. <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one, one. Welcome to the Creator Institute podcast. Your host, Erin Coster. How's it going, everyone? The first thing that's going to strike you about today's episode is when we meet Dale Stevens is when he describes himself as dropping out of school at fifth grade and then dropping out again after his first semester in college. Uh, Dale Stevens has had an incredibly interesting early life. Um, he does talk on on the show about you know his decision to say the the formal education system growing up wasn't for him and deciding to go and uh, do homeschooling when he was really young, going on saying, all right, now I'm going to start college and ultimately feeling like that wasn't the fit for him. Uh, he's had some really interesting experience. He wrote a book. Uh, he has started a, a company called uh, Uncollege. He's been all over the place. He was a Teal Fellow. And we talk a lot about that sort of journey of creating and and taking the elements of feedback into that process. Uh, we talk about his book, which he is described as the title of his Hacking Your Education, which is published by Penguin um, and is a best-selling title. He talks about you know, in some ways, the first version of this book was really, really, really anti-education. And it walks back from there. The, the, we talk a little bit about how that decision, how he got feedback, uh, you know, outside of the formal bounds of education, how he was able to get feedback from mentors to really make sure that he could send a message of hope and ultimately kind of share with people how to really own their education. Whereas he started out saying, screw the education system. And today I think he realizes that, you know, the education system can be a great fit for most people. Um, but most what's important in it is, is owning your own trajectory. Uh, Dale's a great guy. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. He pulls no punches as we go along, which I enjoyed. And, and I think he's someone who's been able to talk about the future of work and education to audiences everywhere from TED to New York Times. Um, he's been uh, named a 30 under 30 in education um, by Forbes. And, and I think he's, he's someone that is continuing to discover the power of the creator. And, uh, and I think we have many interesting things to look forward to ahead. Dale Stevens, everyone, the author of Hacking Your Education. Dale Stevens, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you so much for spending some quality time with me. And uh, it was sort of fun for you and I before we got on to sort of reminisce about the hazy periods in which we both met. I was in the middle of starting a company. You were in the middle of a Teal Fellowship and starting a company. Um, so I'm glad we got to, to chat here uh, almost uh, like seven or eight years after that time, first time we met way back when. Yeah, it'll be seven years in January since I officially dropped up dropped out of college. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, and, uh, you know, we'll talk about how, uh, how, how you never look back in some ways. So, <laughs> um, I love it. Well, I think I'm going to start with a, a, uh, a quote that, uh, from an article you wrote in, uh, in fast company. And, and the quote goes like this, you wrote, I learned early to live by the words of Mark Twain and quote, have never let my schooling interfere with my education. So what, what resonates with you about that quote in particular, um, you know, from, uh, from youth even to today uh, that you think about that, that sort of 
encapsulates you? I think giving some some geographic and, and historical context to, to where I grew up is probably helpful. Um, I grew up in a small farm town in, in Northern California. Um, and despite it being only an hour and a half from San Francisco, it, it really is a farm town. It, it may as well be the middle of Nebraska. Um, hey, I'm yeah. from Nebraska, by the way. Come on <laughs> I just now. Totally, that, uh, I chose, I chose yeah, that totally at random. I love it, though. Um, yeah. Yeah. There you um, go. But but you know it's a it's a small farm town where you know what revolve you know what is valued is you know football on Friday nights not yep. academics and so yep. uh, I ended up leaving school at the end of fifth grade basically because I wanted to get an education and and that was really because the public school system was not designed to to educate it was designed to pass the bare minimum. Um, get students out the door and make sure everyone was entertained on Friday nights. The teachers who worked there, you know, although mostly well-intentioned, weren't really interested in challenging themselves yeah. or creating any extra work for themselves, which means they didn't challenge their students. Yep. Um, and, you know, mediocrity was, you know, it was what was valued was mediocrity, not, um, not, not learning or challenge or progress. Right. And so that's, that's really where, where that started. So I ended up um, leaving school at the end of fifth grade. Um, I got very lucky. There was uh, the town that I grew up in is uh, just west of uh, Davis, California, which mm-hmm. has UC Davis. Mm-hmm. So I think as the, at the time it had the second highest per capita number of PhDs after New Haven, Connecticut. Really? That's so it was a, a very, a very educated town. And mm-hmm. it turned out that many of the uh, professors were, were homeschooling and unschooling their children. Hmm, and so we found this uh, ad in the local newspaper for a quote not back to school night, where everyone who was making an alternative choice to going to public school got their got together and planned out what they were going to do collaborative, collaboratively. So I was I was eleven, I think I was at the beginning of sixth grade, and it was you know what was really amazing was that there was a, a community that had a, a vocabulary and a framework and a mm-hmm. philosophy for what my parents and I were trying to wrap our heads around and describe. Um, and so making a choice that um, was alternative became a lot less scary once we saw, oh, there's 30 other people who are doing the right. exact same thing, right? Right. Um, as well as, you know, realizing that what, you know, what, what became six years outside of school was initially, oh, we'll take a year off. Right, um, right. And we can always go back. And yep. then it became, oh, you know, I'll go back to high school. Because you know I'll have to you know do science requirements and pass the SAT, yep. and of course by the time I got to high school I had you know worked on political campaigns and started little small businesses and gotten to meet a whole bunch of interesting academic intellectual friends and I was like what the fuck would I go back to middle school? <laughs> right. And like yeah, that sounds like the worst idea. And I don't know. Like every once in a while someone will be like, "Aren't you sad that you missed out on middle school and high school?" And I'm like, "Fuck no!" Like I missed out on like. <laughs> bullying and mediocrity and like, you know, learning to entertain myself when I was bored as hell. Like, no, like who likes middle school? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like awkward dancing, like being shy in the locker room. Like who actually likes middle school and high school? No one. Yeah. No, not at all. The people, uh, someone told me once before, it was funny. I, I, I was told, I think I, you know, I was like sort of in that similar boat. Like I didn't like high school or grade school. Like I felt out of place. And someone told me that uh, the only people who like 
like high school or loved that period of time, uh, <laughs> they won't like their life when they're middle-aged or whatever's when they're in their 20s. And so it's one of those things that you get to pick which period you want. <laughs> pick it not that short, shitty period. Pick it when you're going to be a little bit older. And I think it's probably true. I remember the most popular kids in uh, middle school and grade school today are not the people that I think are... Uh, we would we would put at the top of the heap, right? Totally. Uh, and I love your I love your line that you you describe it as like I think you you introduced this in the forward of your book. You say uh, you you were a an elementary and a college dropout. <laughs> so like, that was the uh, like I you know I've I've heard of people being you know sort of college dropouts. That's not that not it's not that it's not unusual, but it's not as unusual as saying you're an elementary school dropout. Did you did you ever wrestle with sort of some of those? Um, that those feelings of sort of not like, oh gosh, like maybe I should be part of the, you know, the marching band and having those things around. Did you ever feel that way? You know, honestly, not really, but I've, ha- mm-hmm. I've always had a very, very strong blunt personality. I think if yeah. I were a different person, I, I would have felt very differently. Mm-hmm. I also think that there were a bunch of blessings in disguise of being outside the system right. that I, I didn't, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm still realizing uh, the value in to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of the, a lot of the things that, that would have made me quote unquote weird sure. being in school yeah. sort of automatically blamed on being outside of school. Hmm. Interesting. Um, the, the one that like particularly jumps to mind is that I'm gay and figuring that out didn't really happen until much later hmm. because I wasn't in a like reinforced heteronormative environment. Interesting. But had I been in middle school and high school, like that would have stood out, that would have been picked on. And it probably would have stunted a bunch of other growth and development. I probably would have come out of the experience with a bunch of baggage. Mm, um, but because I was like outside the system, a bunch of things that would have you know potentially made me weirder, the outsider, yeah, um, were much easier to deal with and, and sort of blamed on, uh, you know, not being in school, right? Which didn't didn't cause any long term emotional, you know, or mental damage because that wasn't well. That wasn't about me, right? Yeah, that was about, about a choice that I made. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. And so, but you did decide to like, you know, to, to play into the pressures and, uh, and, and re-enter the educational system in college. So what was that process to say, I guess now I should go to college that went through your mind? I, I realized pretty early on in the process of starting on college, how hypocritical that seemed. Um, you know, early on the justification, particularly to my dad, who was, you know, comes from a family of engineers, as sort mm-hmm. of as you would imagine, a very uh, wrote and by the book kind of person. Right. Um, one of the justifications was, look, like homeschoolers actually get into college at much higher rates than people who go to public school, which you know initially might sound counterintuitive, but if you think about it for a second, it actually makes a ton of sense. People who have unique experiences, who have experience managing their time, etc., are going to make better college students. And so, we know when the time I was the time I was applying to college was sort of just at the windfall of when um, there were enough colleges on the national level who'd had homeschoolers come and had really good results. Mm-hmm. But they were I really actively recruiting homeschoolers. Interesting. Like hmm. uh, at the time, I recall Princeton's um, uh, whatever they called it had valedictorian. Um, mm-hmm. had been a homeschooler a couple of years before, and so they were like very actively recruiting homeschoolers and. Of course, in the way, you know, in the college industrial complex, everyone copies the Ivy League. Um, and so everyone was kind of following suit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so initially was, well, you know, actually homeschooling will help me get, you know, do better on the SAT and get into better right. schools, um, which now looking back seems, you know, so 
hypocritical to, <laughs> to use well, it's, a system. It's what you knew at the time, right? I mean, that's, I think yeah. it's, you know, you didn't know any better, but I think in some ways it's, it's just, it is interesting. I think that college, even to this day, I still see it. And, and, you know, I, I am, uh, I am both part of the system and outside of the system here as a professor at Georgetown and also an entrepreneur who thinks like there's a lot of problems with the systems. Um, it's interesting that there still is this huge, massive pressure on college is something that you have to do to get uh, to get into the workforce. Right. I think there is a real big sense of that. The thing that that always boggles my, my mind about that is how little, I mean, in my experience, hiring people and helping yeah. people get jobs. Yeah. yeah, there is very little that the, the the decision points have very little to do with your actual experience or what you have done right. and almost entirely to do with how you communicate your experience. Right. Right. Which is, which is never taught no. in, in college. I mean, I was, I was a, a friend of mine. Um, I, I met a, a friend's, a friend's grandson just finished a law degree um, and has been like driving for Uber. And they were like, Oh, can you help our son get a job? And he's like, you know, I'd had a couple conversations with him. He seemed competent and like a good communicator. And then he mm-hmm. sent me his resume. And it was like, Oh my God, you have no fucking clue yeah. how to write a goddamn resume. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> like you're clearly a competent person. Like I would hire you based off of the, like, you know, two hours I spent talking to you. But like, if you can't communicate, you're, you're dead in the water. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we spend a lot of time telling people that it's uh, success comes from association, not from action. And so it's a little bit of, I think there's this default and I see it a lot with my students who say, I already did the work of getting into Georgetown. Now other people are going to say, hire me simply because of that. The people who've already said I'm, I'm qualified. And I think that the world has shifted, right? Fundamentally shifted even over the last five to seven years where now we have a track record and evidence that people can look at. And so I think you're, you're, you're probably even seeing your own experiences over the last seven to eight years. It's the world I think is, has flipped over even in that period of time, um, even more so. Oh, completely. I mean, like the, the thing that boggles my mind the most is when I started on college seven years ago, you know, it was, it was blasphemy to suggest yeah. that, that the system needed <laughs> to change. Right. That's right. And, and now, you know, I talked, like basically every single college president agrees that the system needs to change. They don't yeah. agree on how to do it. Right, right. But every single person agree, like thinks the system is broken and it needs mm-hmm. to change. And mm-hmm. that is like, that is a complete reversal of attitudes from seven years ago when I, you know, would get a hate mail from college administrators and professors. Yeah. Um, saying that I was, you know, devil incarnate. Yeah. And when, so you, so you did, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit, did, not after that much time, you decided to, to drop out and you, it wasn't as if, you know, there's some people I've, I've read some of the people in their stories. So you would go on to get a Teal fellowship, but some people link those together. Like, oh gosh, like I'm going to drop out because of this opportunity. You sort of dropped out without much of a parachute or a net behind you. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I had the parachute of having a family who, you know, at the very least I could go and, you know, they could feed me and give me a place to live. Right, right. Um, but yeah, initially my parachute was I had I had spent uh, a couple months working for um, the folks at, who started a company called Zinch, um, many of whom now do interesting things in the ed tech space. Um, and Dwayne is a VC at Village Global. Uh, the founder, Mick Hagen, has gone on to start a company in London. One of the other founders runs a VC firm in Utah. Um, Dave Blake and Chris McCarthy run Degreed, which is a huge player in the alternative credentialing space. Um, uh, but initially, my, my landing space was uh, 
and was like, look, you know, come over, do some work here for 20 hours a week, whatever you need to pay your bills and you can hang out and figure out what you want to do with your life. Um, so I, I, I feel very lucky that I at least had the initial landing space of having spent time in San Francisco and having, you know, built the start of a network, um, that was able to support me when I, when I moved back. Yeah. And I saw, I saw, you know, not everyone it's still, you know, I'm going to drop out of my pursuit of this dreams. Uh, you didn't get all positive. Hey, congratulations on doing this. I, I think there was a quote that I read that someone wrote you an email saying you've fallen into an elaborate fantasy and need to wake up. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a college, that was a, a, a college student at the same college. I still, I was, uh, I was like going through my Evernote the other day and I found a copy of that email that I'd saved and I was like, if I could only, yeah, it's <laughs> like, what is that person up to now? Yeah. Usually that's what I want to figure I was, I was going to ask you if you followed up to see like, what's the, the difference between, um, the non-fantasy and the fantasy life. You should, you should, uh, that, yeah, uh, some, some research that you do. So, I, I so believe then he went to med school okay. at Wash U. Yeah. So there, you know, I mean, I think, I think probably for him, it made perfect sense, right? There is yeah. a sense that there's an achievement with a professional degree in mind. Okay, great. Uh, not to say that your your career path choice is any weirder, but it is. It's uh, it should be any more any weirder. It's just different, you know. I think that's the important part. Yeah, totally. So I want I want I want to have I want you to tell a story that I that is in your the early part of your book, the introduction, where the uh, the woman uh, a woman asks you about your uh, your dating life in connection to your decision to drop out. Would you would you tell that? Because I thought it was fascinating to hear uh, this woman's perception of uh, what what not going to college would actually cost you socially. Yeah, and and I will also preface this by saying like I I, I wrote that story because it was funny. Um, and it, it made a good story for the book, but you know, the, the more I, the, the more time I've spent interfacing with students and professors and college presidents, you know, the, the more I think that her point actually rings true and has a lot of valid sense, um, and is actually something that that is never really considered for the design of higher education, mm-hmm. but actually is something that really should be considered. Anyway, um, I was uh, I was in the cafeteria and. Uh, woman's main concern about my dropping out of college was that I would, I would miss out on all the beer and the girls <laughs> in college. And, you know, my initial response was like, well, why is that important? Um, and then a second later, I was like, well, you know, I prefer guys in champagne. There's a hell of a lot more of that in San Francisco than there ever will be in Arkansas. But, but on, on a more serious note, like, I think that actually, you know, a, a huge number of people meet their partners in college. Yeah. Um, a yeah. huge number of people have sex for the first time in college. Yeah. Like, like optimizing for sex and, and meeting partners is actually a huge value out of what college does. Interesting. And I think, yeah. I think, you know, if anything, you know, the, the only thing that I ever think that I potentially missed not going to college was that college has, has a monopoly on young single people. Mm-hmm. Like That's interesting. Being point. a, being a single 20 year old in San Francisco, was not a particularly great experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exacerbated that by the fact that San Francisco is not a city that really has a lot of colleges. You know, had I been living in New York or DC, I probably wouldn't have that complaint. Yeah. Um, but San Francisco is, you know, not, not a place where it was, it was very, very, I was very much the outlier to mm-hmm. be a single 19 year old, 20 year old living in right. SF. Right. And it's, it's so also so fascinating to see, so, you know, at that, that initial core time when I left, there were, I don't know, there were maybe 20 to 30 of us who were within a couple, a couple of years of each other who had made the choice to not go to school. Mm-hmm. And now there's probably, I would say probably about 500 mm. 
people in San Francisco who right. are, you know, you know, at this point, like under, I'm going to say like under 28 because the yeah. oldest were a couple years older than me. But, it, you know, to be able to come here and say, you know, you know, I'm 19 and running a company and raised $10 million from Andreessen Horowitz and, and, you know, and, and I'm gay and like have four employees or, and, you know, have 20 employees and to not be the only person. Right. Like that's right. pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That, w- a- that was not true when, when I started. Yeah. That's the power of, I mean, community really does matter. And I think it's why you're seeing in some ways, a lot of shifts towards, uh, towards this concept of creating communities that are these more niche things. I mean, it's, you know, like I said, it started out as, is incredibly niche, 20 of you. Right. And now to think that it's, uh, you know, 500, I think that, that just uh, shows us that traditional structures of assimilation, which are, you know, these colleges or these, you know, those sorts of ways are starting to be changed. And the internet is certainly doing that, which is, which it's a, it's an interesting point. Right. So, so tell me then a little bit about your transition. You know, you're, you're, you're sort of on your own now. You're trying to figure it out and uh, you see this crazy new thing um, called the Teal Fellowship. What did you think and, and why did you decide to, uh, to go for it? I didn't really put a lot of thought into it, to be, t- to be totally mm-hmm. honest. Um, I think it was mostly, you know, I was, uh, I, I had experienced six months of living part time in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I knew that I'd found a community of other entrepreneurs that I really enjoyed. Um, I was hating my first six to eight weeks at school. I, just, <laughs> I, was, I was bored mostly. I had yeah. gone from, um, and, the, and the interesting thing about, about self education that I think most people don't realize is that it's a, it's a shit ton of work. Yeah. Um, because not, not only are you actually doing the learning, you're deciding what you're going to learn and then you're figuring out how to assess what you learned. Mm, interesting. Um, and so college for me was like a reduction of two thirds of my entire work. Hmm. Suddenly someone else was doing the, the, the decision-making of what I was going to learn and doing the ass- assessment. And I just had to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, so my attitude was like, Oh, this is easy. Like, this was, like, <laughs> they, like what I expected. and everyone else was like, Oh my God, I'm have to write like a two page, you know, science report or something. I was like, well, that should take you 45 minutes. What's the problem? Um, and so I just, you know, it just, it wasn't, I mean, fundamentally it wasn't a good culture fit. Yep. Um, you know, I think I, 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 I did not choose the right environment. Mm-hmm. You know, on the flip side, I ended up choosing a place that impacted the rest of my entire life for leaving. So right, right. You know, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Um, but I now totally forgot the question that you asked. No, I, yeah. I, I was asking about your, you know, sort of decision to apply for the Teal Fellowship. Oh, 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 yes. um, yeah. So, I mean, I was, I, I was looking for an out, right. And, yeah. and um, a hundred K in two years was a, uh, was an easy out that gave yeah. me a lot of time to think and explore and figure it out. You know, I was, I was not a shoe in. Um, I was initially rejected. Hmm. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I applied to start a low cost transatlantic airline, believe it or not. Really? Uh, That's so- amazing. When I was when I was like seventeen, I was running around Silicon Valley trying to convince people to give me money to start a low cost transatlantic airline. Um, which at the time, so at least everyone, you don't dream small. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So at the time, I, everyone thought it was kind of ridiculous. But you know, now Wizz Air and Norwegian are proving everyone wrong. So maybe in hindsight, yeah. it wasn't wasn't such a, a terrible idea. Right. Um, I certainly certainly didn't have the <laughs> operational experience. Um, so I, I, I was rejected and, and I was like, whatever, oncology had picked up a bunch of steam and I'd gotten lucky that I'd gotten a bunch of press. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, that was really just being the right, being at the, in the right place at the right time, being articulate and also having an authentic story, right? Yeah. I was yeah. certainly not the first person to write the book that, 
you know, college is going to change. Mm-hmm. Anya Kamenetz, I think, can put a flag on the ground, and she does great work. Yep. But, you know, Anya has two parents who are professors at Yale, and right. like, that's just not a right. fun, clickable story. <laughs> right. uh, a, fun click- a fun, clickable story is, like, elementary school dropout drops out of college and yeah. you know, proclaims the end of higher education, right? Yeah. Um, and so just, you know, a, a bunch of things conspired in the, in the right way. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's how the Teal Fellowship happens. That's amazing. So tell me then, let's talk a little bit about the book that, that you were, that uh, sort of came from this a little bit. Um, it, it, what's interesting is, is the, you make a point and to say this book is not about dropping out, right? And, and to your point about being hypocritical in some ways, I think, I think you, you make the statement to say, listen, not everyone should drop out, but everyone should have more sort of autonomy and ownership over the way that they learn in their education. What was that sort of a difference in the way that you decided to write? Like it was originally to say like everyone should like higher education is over. And this was a way to sort of, to take it back a notch or how did, how did that process go through as you came up with what was the big idea in the book? I think what you're picking up on is that, you know, the longest, the longest piece of writing that I'd ever done before this book was like a 12 page paper. in college. Yeah. Um, so no, I just, I, I really wasn't a very experienced writer. And so right. I, I turned a lot to, to friends and mentors, um, uh, who, who helped me turn what was basically like a series of blog posts railing against high red yeah. into what I actually am I'm pretty proud of yeah. as a book. Like I think, I think the book is cohesive. It has a storyline that's woven throughout. It has a bunch of tangible, actionable bias. People that I like and respect continue to tell me that they got value from the advice that was in the, in the book. So mm-hmm. um, I think it, I think it turned out well, but yes, it, but, um, you know, it, it was originally much more vitriolic mm-hmm. and, and railing against higher ed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I was wise enough to at least listen to the advice that they gave me right. at that time, even if I didn't fully believe it myself at, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I definitely believe it now. I mean, yeah. I, I, th- I think what I, what I learned from five, four and a half of year, years of running um, on college as a gap year program is that the vast majority of 18-year-olds aren't mature enough to have the self-control and self-awareness to succeed outside of a system. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that most people need some time between 18 and 22 to figure that out. I definitely don't think that, yeah. that sending everyone to a four-year college that costs 60 grand a year is the best solution for that in any way, shape or form. Um, but I, I would not agree with the statements that I made when I was, when I was 18 or 19 that suggested that anyone was capable of, uh, succeeding outside of school, no matter their hmm. their own backgrounds, at you know, at, at eighteen. Yeah, I mean that's, and I think that's in some ways what's the process of writing a book somewhat teaches you those. I, I think like you probably would have figured that out, but you figured it out in a much faster period of time by going through the process, listening, learning, versus like being very sort of well, this is my experience. It should have applied to everyone, and I think that's why. I'm such a big believer in the process of writing a book just forces you to really come to terms with what you truly believe. Totally. Totally. I mean, I feel like as I was, as I was, uh, over the course of the last year, as I was leaving on college and thinking about what to do next, a couple of people were like, well, like maybe you should go back and get, get a master's degree. And I, I like laughed at them <laughs> initially. And then, and then I was like, you know, I, I, I like briefly considered the idea seriously for a moment. I was like, well, I basically have a master's in education and an MBA at this point. Like I wrote a thesis right? and I like ran a business for, for four years. Like I, like, mm-hmm. why would I, why would I possibly do that? Um, 
But yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, even even as we designed uh, success metrics for Oncology and, and the gap year experience, which is now year on, um, what we designed as as the graduation capstone experience was basically a, a thesis defense, a dissertation. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Where we yeah. ask, ask each student to go before a panel of three staff members and talk about what they've learned. Um, and they don't, you know, we're not asking, they, 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 they do some small written reflections, but mostly we're asking them to be articulate about why they did the program, mm-hmm. what they learned from the program, what they took that will, that, that they can change and impact going forward. The kinds of questions that you'd expect a, a first job interviewer or right. a savvy college admissions officer mm-hmm. to get good answers to. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, that's really the metric that, that you want to be that's right. evaluating for. I, I had, uh, I was in a, uh, sort of a, a session with, uh, Ted Leonsis, who is, was one of the early folks at Revolution and now the owner of the Wizards. And he went to, he describes that he had two dissertation defenses while he was in college. And he asked, like, to the room, very, sort of, in a very kind of, like, curious way. So, so do you guys have your dissertation or sort of your thesis defense? I think is what he called it. You're, you, you defend your thesis to a panel of faculty members. And everyone looked at him like, no, we don't do that. And I thought like, you know, he described it as something that was really great for him. Like it was something that helped him literally think about himself. And, and it's, it's interesting hearing you say that because it is an interesting thing. We almost never have someone really put enough time to be able to get hard questions from really smart people to be able to prepare for that first interview. You know, whatever that's going to be, when you get tough questions, um, it's a surprising thing that we've gone so far away from that in, in education. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. We, we we sort of we augmented this by adding a. Uh, we have everyone give a, a two minute presentation <laughs> right. uh, at the at to to everyone uh, yeah. to like staff, parents, friends, mentors, etc. Um, and some of them are like really fucking good. Like every yeah. every time they happen, a couple people like consistently make everyone cry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's incredible in a world where communication matters so much i think it's uh it is interesting that we emphasize multiple choice tests and those sorts of things over things that really do emphasize um, our ability to communicate yeah um so so i want to talk a little bit about what the sort of how the book has changed uh in some ways the 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 opportunities for you uh, out of it i mean obviously you're in the midst of launching a company um, while you're writing and publishing this book, uh, you've had these other elements of credibility press and you've been featured on like 4,000 different um, publications. How did the book itself help you stand out differently um, than, than maybe some of the other things you've been doing or done uh, were? For better or for worse, a book is still a credential, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and having, having a book that was picked up by a major publisher, um, I think is more of a credential to the vast majority of the world than the TL Fellowship will ever be, right? Interesting. Being yeah. a, being and and this is probably less true now that Oncology is well known and so on and so forth. But certainly, being able to say, "Oh, Penguin is publishing my book," was an an uh, an instant measure of cre- credibility all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. In a way that, oh, I'm part of the Teal Fellowship that no one had heard of. And at this point, I you know don't really I tend not to associate myself with mm-hmm. uh, the Teal Fellowship as much mm-hmm. as possible because I yeah. ref- would prefer refraining from supporting Peter's uh, extravagant lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it, it really functions and serves as a credential. And I think it, I think it particularly gave me access to 
spaces and ideas and people that I wouldn't necessarily have had access to otherwise. Um, and also got my ideas in places, even, even sort of without my knowledge. Um, and I have one particular example that I'll share um, that I think really helped influence and transform um, higher ed over the course of, of the last couple of years. And is one of the reasons that college presidents now say, you know, it, this needs to change. We just don't, mm-hmm. don't know how. Um, a couple of years ago, I think it was probably, probably a year after the book came out, um, got an email from a guy uh, who worked at the Aspen Institute um, mm-hmm. and was like, hey, like, if you're ever in D.C., you know, I'd love to take you out to lunch. You know, our education program had, you know, 300 people read your book this summer oh, like, wow. and discuss it like at the Institute. I'm like, A, like, why didn't you fucking invite me to come like, <laughs> yeah, talk? Exactly. And B, that's cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was entry into spaces like that. And, and you know, I I, I don't have a list of who those people were. I'm, I'm still from, friends with the person who, who did that. He worked in the Obama administration for a while. Um, but, you know, I, it, that's, that's, that's one that I heard about, mm-hmm. and I can only imagine that there were others that I didn't. Mm-hmm. And having, having those ideas percolate through 300 influential leaders, I'm right. sure, uh, was, you know, part of what helped drive those ideas right. forward. right. Yeah, it's it's amazing what you know. Like I said, those those things that you didn't know about just because someone else recommended someone else. That next thing you know, your book opens those doors. It's uh, it's pretty fascinating to see. Um, what do you you talked about? What some of the things that you might change in your book now that you've got the benefit of time? What what are some of the things that you would say uh, your p- perspective has been colored now that you've you, know, you write a book and four years later now you're sort of thinking about some of those elements? Um, what's what's changed in your perception over that time? I think the biggest thing for me. Is, is less about the book and, and more about having jumped into running a business at a, mm-hmm. at a young age. Um, you know, there's so much that I didn't know about being a good manager because I'd never managed people. I'd never been managed. Um, uh, you know, I started a company as a sole founder. That was a stupid idea. <laughs> it was incredibly, incredibly lonely. Um, you know, you can't talk to your employees. You can't talk to your investors. Your parents don't get it most of the time. You know, it, you know there was there were just a, a whole bunch of things uh, uh, around that that lead me to wish that I had taken a couple more years mm-hmm. um, to learn sure. um, before jumping into to starting a company that I think ultimately would have made the company more successful because also the company was a, a was a few years too early. Right. You know, I I look at what um, what Eric Braun is doing uh, with Mission U, and I wish him all the best and hope it goes well. But like their messaging is almost exactly the same messaging that we had early on. <laughs> right. Um, but we had to scale it back because the world wasn't ready for it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, and and I imagine, and you know, I've given I've given uh, Adam lots of lots of free advice. Uh, I imagine that they will have to scale back some of it. Um, but you know, I you know, I, I would certainly not suggest to a nineteen or twenty year old to go out and raise two two million dollars. Right. I would I would much I would much more highly recommend to wait until you're at least twenty five to start a company and right. have to deal with the pressure and stress of having other people be dependent on you and being responsible for 
the livelihood of other people's kids <laughs> yeah. and like learning how to take your own mental and physical health seriously and you know dealing with how your own brain physiologically changes until you're 25 you know just all those kinds of things yeah that yeah. you know there's so much growth that happens between 20 and 25 yeah. and i think at the end of the day when i was running a business that took priority over over my own personal growth and that is that is something that yeah. i regret yeah it's a we you know it's a it is it is a lot to run a business period and i think especially when there's all these other things going on it's it's challenging to to sort of manage humans manage yourself and so there's a there's a reason i think the average successful entrepreneur is 40 years old <laughs> because right, totally. it's just there's a lot of stuff that goes on not to say it shouldn't happen or you shouldn't learn from it but there's a lot to certainly a lot to do well this has been super fun i i uh it's sort of and it's interesting to see and and watch your journey as uh, as you've gone through navigating the process as an entrepreneur, as an author, uh, and ultimately just as sort of a, a young person taking a different attack in life. And so it's been fun for me. And and I do think your your book is is really, you know, I, I liked a lot of what you said because I think that you really do you know paint this message in hacking your education all about like do whatever you want, but just. Be owners, take ownership of what that is and know that like, just because you show up in a lecture every day and take the test and walk out doesn't learn anything, which I think is a big, big, big message you're trying to send there. Totally, totally. You can you can go to the gym every day and, and uh, never get on the treadmill and you'll never lose weight. Yep, that's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending spending quality time and uh, and I'm sure this was uh, hopefully interesting for others as it was for, for us to chat on. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me.